Hi friends, welcome back. My guest today is Dr. Diana Fleischman, and we're talking about how catching COVID can change your personality. When we get sick with a virus like COVID-19, our bodies respond, but our behavior and personality also change in a number of important ways, and sometimes it doesn't change back. So today, expect to learn why avoiding new foods when you're ill makes evolutionary sense, whether needing the bathroom reduces your belief in free will, why extroversion is reduced when you're sick, what Diana thinks about evolutionary psychology's place in mindfulness, and much more. This is just super fascinating evolutionary psychology stuff, peering under the hood into the source code of why we do the things we do, why we act the ways we act. Uh, yeah, I really, really enjoyed this one. Lots to take away. And um, I'd be interested to know if you've noticed any odd impact that being ill with COVID or any other uh, illness has had on you, feel free to uh, drop a comment in the YouTube channel or at Chris Will X wherever you follow me. Also, before we get into the sponsor for the show, don't forget to press subscribe, please. Thank you. The little subscribe button on your app, just give it a little tap, tap it, tap, tap it away. Uh, it makes me very happy. So if you do that, that would be great. In other news, this episode is brought to you by brand new sponsor, The Hybrid Pillow. The Hybrid Pillow is the first pillow to combine traditional comfort with revolutionary memory foam support technologies. The pillow is basically a blend of memory foam on the outside, and in the middle, it's encasing a 50-50 blend of duck feather and down. So it's the best option if you're looking for a supportive pillow that has all the comfort of a traditional one. Having a hybrid mix pillow provides the orthopedic support of memory foam, which relieves pressure buildup around the neck area, keeps your head and spine aligned, while the feather and down core softens the pillow and makes sure that you stay cool and comfortable throughout the night. If you've tried other memory foam pillows but found them too firm and uncomfortable, this is for you. It'll help reduce muscle soreness in the morning, it keeps your spine properly aligned throughout the night, and reduces how much you wake up from head movement. On top of that, they guarantee a better night's sleep or you get your money back. So head to thehybridpillow.com and use the code MW20 for 20% off everything site-wide. That's thehybridpillow.com, or there is a link in the show notes below that you can follow, and just use the code MW20 for 20% off, plus that guaranteed better night's sleep or your money back, thehybridpillow.com. <sighs> but now it's time for the wise and wonderful Diana Fleischman. Diana Fleischman, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to have you here. Talking about whether COVID can change your personality. Uh, what even is that question? What, what are we on about? So there's a lot of evidence that viruses and bacteria try and change host behavior. So there's some really interesting stuff about that, how they might try and change your behavior in order to make themselves transmit more easily, but also about how you, as an organism, you're... you're goals and priorities from it from an evolutionary perspective change a lot when you have an infection so if you're healthy you might have certain goals like seeking out new people to engage with seeking out new social and mating opportunities feeding foraging stuff like that but when you are sick your fundamental goals really change and what i'm thinking about since i since i just recovered from covid is about how my personality changed and how there might be millions of people 
who have had COVID who now feel different. And during COVID, you have this incredible level of inflammation. Many people who are long haulers and otherwise have what's called a cytokine storm, which is a level of inflammation. And when you have high inflammation, it tells your immune system, it tells you that you have an infection and that you should behave accordingly, which involves a whole bunch of different aspects of personality and behavior changing. So is there a little bit of a battle going on? There is the pathogen, which is trying to find its way around. And then there are the defenses of the host, which are trying to stop its way to get through. Yeah. So there are some things that you're, if you think about what you feel like when you're ill, there are some things that are good for the pathogen and good for the host. So one example of that is sneezing. Sneezing clears you out. It's good to get the pathogens out, but the pathogen also wants you to sneeze because it's the best way for you to spray everybody with copies of itself, right? So that's one way in which your interests are aligned, so long as you're not like sneezing on your kids, right? But there's other things where your interests are not aligned. So fever is one way that your interests are not aligned. The, the virus and the bacteria, whatever you're infected with, does not want you to have a fever because the fever is really optimal for you. This is why I get very frustrated when people take anti-febrile, you know, anti-fever medications when they're sick. I, I never do because the fever is really the best possible thing for you to be, uh, you know, doing. Um, also, you know, there's other things like there's a reason why you're more interested either in not eating or eating familiar foods when you're sick. That's because unfamiliar foods might have pathogens that will compete for access to your immune system. Uh, so they'll, they'll be more costly. Uh, and also it takes a lot of energy to digest. So in that sense, your body's also winning and as an appetite suppressant. Um, if, a, if a virus or a bacteria could really properly manipulate you, they'd probably try to make you hungry. <laughs> it's, um, it's interesting thinking about the individual differences, like what's happening on an individual level with regards to COVID. It's almost all of the conversations that we're having um, are medical rather than psychological. And if they're psychological, they're group differences to do with how are people's mental health. How is society going to come back from that? It's never talking about what is it like to be ill? What are the sort of adaptations that your genes have just sat latent in the back of your mind waiting to deploy as soon as you get a virus inside of you? There's this yeah. word this word that you, you sent me an article that I learned. Can you explain what lassitude is, please? Lassitude, yeah. So there's, you know, we have emotions, happiness, surprise, fear, anger, disgust. But lassitude is the emotion of being sick. It's the whole, you know, so what we think about as evolutionary psychologists is emotions are a way to try and optimize your state of being in any given moment to solve a certain adaptive problem. If you're angry, you want to punish somebody for wronging you, maybe in the hopes that they won't punish you, I mean, that, that they won't wrong you again in the future. And when you have lassitude, you are optimizing your behavior, uh, both socially and just alone in ways that are going to prevent you from exerting more energy than you need, but also are going to help you get people around you who are going to take care of you. So lassitude is different to the non-conscious things that you do, like having a high fever and sort of shivering and stuff like that. Is that part of lassitude or is lassitude more sort of phenomenological? Lassitude is, is, the, is the whole thing, but it's also the yeah, feeling of malaise, feeling of fatigue, but also feeling chills. You know, when we get angry or embarrassed, you also have physiological changes that happen. 
when you're afraid, sometimes you will shit, right? Because you don't want to, if you're running off, to be carrying around whatever it is you're digesting. You need all your energy to run away. It's funny that snakes do this too. If you scare a snake and they just ate something big, they'll completely throw it up. And yeah, so have like I've seen that happen. Because it's important for them to get away. It's more important than them eating that particular meal. That's the snake's version of shitting their pants. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you've got like a full alligator or whatever inside of you and you try and very quickly digest that, it's just going to end up tearing a hole in you. Uh, yeah, you can't, you can't get away if you've, you know, just eaten a third of your body weight now. So lassitude has similar kinds of, you know, it makes you feel, uh, cold. It makes you feel tired and also can make you feel very sensitive to pain and emotionally sensitive. So, uh, there's a bunch of studies where they injected people with something called endotoxin. It's basically, um, bacterial particles that don't really make you sick, but they activate your immune response as if you are sick. And they found that people are more sensitive to rejection, social rejection, when they've been injected with this. this. It's very funny how sensitive people are to rejection. So imagine this. It's this game that people play where two people are passing a ball back and forth in like a computer simulation. So you just see this ball, like there's two players, they're like dots. They're passing a ball back and forth. They pass to you once. And then the whole rest of the game, they don't ever pass the ball to you. That's the rejection. (laughs) Is that... People who you can't even see in a game don't pass a ball to you. I don't want to, I don't want that to happen though. That makes me feel left out. I want the ball. I want to play. Yeah. FOMO. FOMO. Serious FOMO. So what ways are the, like talking about food, which is something that you just brought up there. Like what, do, why is our desire for familiar food important? And why is the change in our appetite important and useful? I, I get very frustrated. In addition to getting frustrated with people endorsing taking fever-reducing medications, I get very frustrated with people like, you have to eat something. It's important that you eat. It's not important that you eat. So digesting food takes something between like 5 and 15% of your uh, resting energy. You spend a lot of your resting energy uh, digesting food. But in addition, when you eat food, there's always some chance that it has some E. coli on it. I mean, everything that we eat has bacteria uh, on it. And so your immune system is activated to some extent by what you eat. This makes sense. You know, when people want to eat food when they're sick, they often want to eat really familiar stuff, you know, some toast with butter or uh, some lemon water. They generally don't want to go to the Chinese buffet and, you know, try the, the pork anuses or whatever it's on the offer, right? <laughs> you, you really have a, a preference for um, incredibly uh, familiar food. And this has also been my experience with being around people who are sickly or injured is that they often really prefer familiar food and they can be very averse to trying anything new food wise. Yeah. Mm. So we don't want to expose ourselves to different types of consumption. There might be some more pathogens in that, which make us even more sick, but the way that that actually manifests is just, I want something that feels like home. I want something that feels like what my mum would make and what that actually is. We might rationalize that as a sense of comfort, which actually is a potential part of it, the familiarity, which we'll get onto. But perhaps more than that, it's food that we know is safe. Yeah, we we have this, uh, you know, as we grow up, this crystallization period. So when we're toddlers, we'll put anything in in our mouths. I've seen toddlers eat little little dog poo. (laughs) Toddlers will will just put anything in in their faces. And then there's a period where your food preferences crystallize. And it's those foods that you know are safe because you've been eating them since you were young. 
And as humans, you know, we evolved all over the planet. We couldn't have a set menu of foods that we could eat everywhere because, you know, Inuits are eating whale blubber and Maasai are drinking cow blood. You know, there's this huge variety of, of foods that people eat. And so it's this period that, that matters. And so when you want to eat something familiar, you're body is saying, I want to eat something that is very unlikely to have pathogens that I'm not already adapted to. What about being needy? People get needy when they're ill. Why is that happening? Yeah. So the, you know, one very important aspect of being human is that you have kin and friends around you who can look after you. And in our ancestral past, if you had been injured or sick and there was nobody to look after you, you could have starved or worse, you would have been very vulnerable. So it makes sense that you want people around you who are also familiar, who can help look after you. And so if you think about something like extroversion, extroversion isn't necessarily, I want to socialize with people all the time. It's extroversion is often, I'm interested in meeting new people, and I feel comfortable meeting new people. And that's prioritizing sort of a novel uh, area of, so of socializing compared to the people that you already know, whereas introverts often tend to prefer um, people in their in their social circle. So if you think about lassitude, lassitude makes you want to invest social capital in the relationships that you already have. You want to signal to the people that you know who are not interested in exploiting you, who are interested in looking after you. I'm vulnerable and I need help. And interestingly, there have been a bunch of studies with animals where they found you know, uh, a male rat will act sick, but if another male rat comes around who is a rival, he stops acting sick entirely, right? These are kinds of studies that are difficult to do uh, in, in humans. And so you see this, that you really can't act vulnerable or sick around uh, strangers, and you can't conserve your energy in the same way around strangers. But if you think about from this perspective, people who have um, chronic inflammation, who have injuries and who have infections, uh, can be fundamentally different to be involved in a friendship or a relationship with. And if you're with somebody and they get sick or injured, they can really fundamentally change the way they relate to you. Mm -hmm. And this is something I don't think people think about enough. You know, when you talk about in sickness and in health, you're really talking about, I'm willing to stay with you even if your personality fundamentally changes from being somebody energetic, socially vivacious, open to experience. If you become more conservative because of illness, I'm going to be willing to stick with you through that. That's the part, the evolutionary psychology adaptation part that should have been put as a footnote in the marriage details, shouldn't it? Because <laughs> what people think when they think of sickness and in health, they think, oh, well, maybe you'll lose your job or maybe you'll break a leg or maybe you'll need whatever looking after. But the question of who are you is a much broader philosophical one. But if something occurs to you, which makes you sick, and that fundamentally changes what we subjectively define as you, the elements of your personality that manifest to make you unique and the thing that we fell in love with, if that changes, it, it kind of all bets are off a little bit like that because you've fallen in love with someone who's very different to the person that stands in front of you, and yet you made a deal with that person that it was in sickness and in health. Yeah, so... This is interesting that many aspects of personality that are valued or that people like about themselves, things like being extroverted, people, you know, people who like, like I'm somebody who's very open to experience. I like weird ideas. I like weird experiences. I like to meet new people and travel to new places. That's a personality construct. And that's something that's 
kind of expensive from an evolutionary perspective. There's all kinds of things that can go wrong. If you're not conforming to what other people are doing, then you're taking risks that you might not be able to afford if you have a limited energy budget because you're sick. These are things you might not be able to afford if catching a novel pathogen other than the one you already have is going to end your life. And this is something that happens anyway when women become mothers or as people get older, they end up becoming more conservative because the cost and benefit of these personality and behavior, things like risk-taking, extroversion, openness to experience, they start to um, reduce in, in rel relative to the benefits of just trying to stay in one place, conforming to what you did before. And, you know, it's, it's difficult, but um, I certainly am feeling better every day and kind of more like myself. But there was a period of, of a week or two after I caught COVID where I knew I wasn't infectious. I was like going for a walk outside and strangers scared me more than they usually do. I was much more socially anxious and I was much more emotionally sensitive. And I talked to my mother every day that I was sick when I barely talked to her twice a month usually. Shit. So the same thing that we're looking for with the food is almost what we're looking for with the relationships. We're looking for yeah. that familiarity, something yeah, deploying strategies to elicit caregiving behaviors from social allies. I think it was put as in that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Signaling vulnerability as well is an interesting one, isn't it? Just perhaps over-egging it. People accuse men of ma man flu all the time. <laughs> but like, the, the problem is that we're so good at deceiving ourselves. I'm like, am I as ill as I'm being? Am I as ill as I'm making out? I don't know. Like, I'm just being, I'm being me. I'm just trying to fucking get yeah. rid of this flu so this is the thing like faking is actually a problem and it's a problem in in societies and there's this great paper published last year or the year before by my former colleague and, and friend Michal Debara Irish guy who I think is at uh, Brunel anyway he did a paper about how when tribes or people go into battle a lot of times you'd be like you know a mile from the enemy camp and you're like oh man I just got this thorn in my foot it's just terrible I really have to turn back like oh, I have this migraine I really have to go and if you think about things like trepanning like digging you know putting a hole in somebody's skull or many of the horrible uh, cures that they used on people things like leeches or drinking your own urine or you know giving people mercury or whatever terrible things that they used to do to people these are ways of really making sure that people are actually sick. If you're really sick, then you have to take this medicine. You know, if you're faking it, you're gonna be like, actually, uh, given that the cure for having a thorn in your foot before going to the enemy camp is having your foot cut off later, I'm actually fine, I'm gonna go, you know, with you. So this is a, this is a, a social technology that people use to make faking much more expensive. That's so interesting. Faking is not expensive anymore, as we know from like how much vulnerability people display all the time. Yeah. There's 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 very little uh, skepticism or cynicism about people saying I'm really hurt What's or I'm really vulnerable. Yeah, I tell you another thing that's interesting about um you were talking about people getting more conservative as they get older. I always find it really hilarious every time in the UK that there's a general election because our country's so small that we can quite easily see the voting demographic. Like, your country's basically 50 countries, like, stuck together. Like, our country's actually just one country. Uh, yeah. Or, yes, yeah, four different countries, and all of them hate each other. Um, right. <laughs> what fascinates me and makes me, it always makes me laugh is when people re, uh, 
they get the election map and they redistribute it based on age. And they go like, look, look at all of these old people voting conservative. And you think, that's you. That's you in 30 years. Do you think you're still going to be bothered about fucking socialism when you're 65? Are you mental? Yeah. People have a lot of difficulty imagining that their future self is going to be very different. And, and honestly, there's a lot of anxiety about uh, changing fundamentally. I think this is part of the anxiety around you know, motherhood and getting older is, is becoming a different person. But it, it is bizarre, especially with this whole COVID thing being so much more likely to kill elderly people. It really was a stark contrast to how people in East Asia were treating this versus people in the West were treating this. On the one hand, complete lockdown, inability to say that we were willing to sacrifice anyone for the for the greater good of everybody, you know, keeping the economy going. But on the other hand, very little conversation about who died and, and what happened to them. Um, you know, after 9-11, there was like moments of silence all the time for people who died on 9-11. I only remember one time that I've been in, involved in any online meeting or anything where there was a moment of silence for people who, who died recently from COVID. So I do think that there's an alienation because of the, the distribution of, of deaths. Does that relate to the openness to experience thing of being sick as well? You, you mentioned about um, some countries with higher pathogen loads are more conservative and more conformist. Yeah, so this is this research, and it's it's pretty controversial. Uh, Randy Thornhill uh, is the main person who's and he's you know written a whole book about it. Um, he basically talks about looking at the pathogen load of various different countries and then examining things like uh, liberalism, progressivism. Um, religiosity, and they talk about how countries with these high pathogen loads, it's much more important for them to stick to traditional ways of doing things because those traditional ways of doing things are less expensive than finding out new ways of doing things, but also things like cooking in a traditional manner. You know that that's safe. You know that avoiding and eating certain foods is safe from a pathogen uh, perspective. And there's, of course, a lot of other problems with these these countries. People have criticized this research. But I think it's really plausible that you would see people becoming more conformist if they are sick because the costs of doing new things and figuring things out on your own just become so much greater. Isn't that uh, one of the justifications for why many religions choose not to eat pork, that pigs often tend to have all manner of sort of nasty creatures inside of them? Uh, pigs are do carry you know zoonotic diseases, and there's a variety of reasons why. Uh, some people say that in among desert people, like uh, among Jews and, and Arabs, it would have been very costly to keep pigs because they need a lot of water. Um, but it is likely that some of the new the zoonotic diseases that have occurred in the last whatever 50 years, H1N1 is a great example, uh, was actually passed from very likely from birds to pigs and then to humans. So pigs have a similar physiology to humans. We often use pigs in, in medical experiments or um, we have medical students dissect them because they have a similar kind of physiology. And they're, you know, when I was reading about COVID initially, it also seems very likely that if you have an animal market where you have a bunch of animals put together, that if a virus can pass from some weird animal like a pangolin uh, to a pig, then it's going to be much more easy, as much smaller step for it to pass than to humans, because the physiology of, of humans and pigs is more similar than other animals like chicken. 
Okay, okay. <laughs> Basically, this is part of the reason why I think it's really important that we stop doing animal agriculture entirely, that we eat meat, you know, that's cultivated rather instead, because um, this kind of stuff is going to keep happening. And there's a, you know, a great uh, piece by Philip Lemoine in Quillette about how comparing how long it took China to talk about uh, COVID versus how long it took the United States to talk about H1N1. Um, they're very comparable. I think there's only like 11 days between them. And uh, it's, it's very likely that any country that factory farms animals is going to be the next hotspot for a new pathogen like this. Are you familiar <laughs> with a guy called Cosmic Skeptic, Alex O'Connor? He's a YouTuber. Okay, so he's a, yeah. he's a really good buddy of mine. And I was talking to him earlier on about this conversation I was going to have with you. I really, want, I really want you two to link up. I really want you to go on his show or for him have a conversation because fuck me if he hasn't really red-pilled me hard. I, I challenge anyone to listen to Alex talk and synthesize stuff like Peter Singer's work and, and, and everybody else that's in this space of like animal rights philosophy, I suppose, and not be convinced by the case not to eat meat. I... I now have fully accepted that my lifestyle is not in alignment with my morals. And before having that conversation with Alex, that's not the case. Now, I mean, he hasn't pushed the guilt or uh, degree of care for me sufficiently high to actually overcome always eating meat. But certainly small changes I've made, like now uh, always almond milk or coconut milk rather than cow's milk. He did this amazing video where he said, when you go up to a Starbucks kiosk you can stop this entire vertically integrated chain of suffering simply by changing one word in your order by adding almond or coconut or whatever uh wheat milk or whatever it's called now uh i i, I don't mean wheat milk what's it called <laughs> oat milk oat milk um it's a friday it's fine yeah i uh i just really really think that that space is interesting at the moment and it seems yeah. like the development in terms of animal rights philosophy is is moving along at a pretty terrifying pace. Yeah, in, in brief, I'm writing up something about how clean meat is what we call it. Uh, that's the new the new uh, term for it, uh, because lab meat sounds weird. And, and people are, as I've just talked about a lot, are very averse to foods that have strange names or strange connotations. Um, but uh, is really going to be very important in terms of preventing any future pandemics for us to do that. And I don't think that the world is going to become uh, vegan in any way, shape or form. I've been involved, was involved very heavily with the vegan movement for a long time. And I became very disillusioned with it because the needle never moved on the proportion of vegans. And most people who say they're vegetarian eat chicken and fish. Uh, I wrote a piece uh, called Practical Veganism about this, about how it's actually better to eat beef once or twice a week than to eat eggs every day from a suffering perspective. And cow's milk matters a little bit, but doesn't actually matter uh, that much in the grand scheme of things. So, you know, my point is, is basically um, you can make some small changes that don't involve giving up meat entirely that can make you cause less suffering than somebody who has given up um, animal products, that, you know, or who has given up everything but eggs, for example. I got, I had a conversation with someone who is into quite green and into saving the planet and stuff like that. Um, I've gone down the existential risk rabbit hole recently with Toby Ord's work and I've got a Brian Christian on the show soon. Is it not mad people who are green but not vegan? Is that not like the single biggest ironic like misalignment of someone's values that you're here to try and save animals from suffering and yet the most direct cause that you could 
find in order to cause suffering is still there sat on your plate? Uh, I agree that people who are, yeah, super eco warriors and who are into preserving the sanctity of nature have a lot to answer for, <laughs> like eating meat and stuff like that. But I also think that nature is, in some fundamental sense, uh, just a suffering cesspool. We enjoy nature because we evolved to enjoy nature. I love to see, a, you know, a beautiful panoramic view of Iceland or a herd of bison as much as the next person. But I know that fundamentally, um, all the animals that we see in nature, especially small animals, are having lives that are terrible. Um, and many of them are having lives that are just as bad as, as animals that are factory farmed. So it, because these these ethical issues are so tricky, and because we evolved in no way, shape or form to consider animals as as moral agents, other than, you know, children and, and people learn to understand animals very well because that was an adaptive characteristic to learn to kill and exploit them. The only affinity we have with animals is actually just a byproduct of our desire to eat them. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, cats and dogs are kind of bred to look like babies. That's a kind of different thing. We didn't evolve to eat them. Uh, but yeah, overall, yeah, there's a lot of very confused logic about eating meat. I would say that you in particular, if you're, are you like paleo at all? Is that mm, what your deal is? No, just trying to be healthy, failing. You're just trying to be healthy. Yeah, I mean, you could absolutely, if you think that um, it's important for human health to eat meat once a week, as I, you know, I don't actually think everyone thrives on a vegan diet. That's something I really changed my mind about in the last 10 years. And I've endorsed people eating mussels and, and clams and other kinds of bivalves if you want to try and cause very little suffering, because I don't think that those animals are capable of suffering. Uh, and they also fill in some uh, gaps nutritionally in a, in a, in a vegan diet. Um, but I hope that in the next couple of years, there's going to be, you know, chicken that you can buy that was grown cellularly. Uh, and Sounds so weird to say grown a chicken. Grow, grow chicken cells. And grow then people chicken. can, you know, as much bloody fried chicken as they want. And, you know, I, I, I predict, and people like David Pierce, the transhumanist, also predict that when this clean meat is, you know, widely uh, dispersed through the population and people are eating it when it's cheaper and considered healthier than meat off the hoof or from killed animals, people are going to be incredibly judgmental about people who eat ordinary meat because it's going to be almost cost-free to have that moral attitude. I found that out to do with our sensation or our love for scandal, why it is that we love scandal so much, because it allows us to feel a moral emotion whilst having to do nothing moral to achieve it. Yeah, I mean, this is when people, people talk about virtue signaling. There's good virtue signaling, and there's also, like, really cheap talk signaling. And people love cheap talk signaling. Yeah, scandal is like, I can I can morally oppose you, and nobody knows really anything about me, so it's super easy to do. There's a great book, uh, it's now a few years old, called Why Everyone Else is a Hypocrite, and it lays out the whole evolutionary psychology of why we're constantly looking for moral loopholes, looking for ways to indict the behavior of others while maintaining our own behavior. Everybody, if you do look at surveys, thinks that they're more moral than other people. And um, actually hating on vegans is a major way that people try and make themselves feel superior. Did you ever see that film with Jet Li? It was called The One. Uh -uh. Okay, so it's maybe about 15 years old. I, oh, I don't know why this film always comes back to me. Like, I, whenever I have conversations, especially to do with status, it's, it's basically a zero-sum game with yourself. So you can imagine there's like 
in the future, there's this police force that polices all the universes, and there's maybe 300 universes, and you exist. So there's a Diana in all 324 universes, but she's slightly different. In one of them, you're an artist, and in the other one, you're a full-time mom, and in the other one, you're that. But there is an amount of energy that you have, like kind of like a superhuman, and there are certain people that realize that if you go through all of the different universes and kill yourself you take their energy. But the problem is obviously that over time, all of the other versions of you are getting stronger too. And they don't understand why only, you know, that you're getting stronger because you're killing everyone else. And when I hear about like non-zero sum status games to do with bringing other people down to make yourself better, I always think about Jet Li killing himself in the one. <laughs> that's like, yeah, that's, that's a very interesting trade off because you know, we evolved kin selection, identical twins, you know, very rarely have terrible fights. They're very likely to cooperate and killing yourself is just the most perverse thing. I actually went on a date with a guy, this is like 15 years ago, um, who told me that he didn't speak to his identical twin brother and they fought all the time. And I just thought that was the creepiest thing I ever heard. <laughs> never spoke again. Wow. You're right. Yeah. Because I mean, what, you would have to adapt if if evolution if um you're going to have identical twins evolution's going to have to put something in that makes you help each other live well yeah i mean we we're all evolved to help people there's a super interesting study um lisa de bruyne is a researcher in the uk who did this interesting study where she morphed like let's say you have two different faces and i morph one of them with a stranger so it's half stranger face anyway and then i morph the other face with your face so unbeknownst to you, it actually looks like you. It has some facial characteristics in common with you. You're going to be much more cooperative if I say you're playing a game with these two people. You won't know why, but you're going to be much more cooperative with the face of the person who looks similar to you, whether they're the same sex or the opposite sex, because all of us have these kin selection uh, mechanisms. And as much as people want to promote you know, things like diversity and um, harmony in a multicultural society, it's very difficult to escape the fact that we are just more generous and and kind to people who look more similar to us did you see this study i remember hearing about this years ago well before the podcast so it could be total bullshit not not that i fact check anything that i say on this in any case but um, <laughs> <Can you> watch- <laughs> <laughs> no. um i remember seeing a study saying that babies young babies are able to tell the difference between different sheep and different cows mm-hmm. they're able to detect differences because they're continually um entranced they're constantly looking when you show them different sheep whereas there's a a line around about three years old i think where toddlers will look for a little bit and then although they are different sheep to them they look like the same sheep so they get bored and distracted and look somewhere else i imagine i know that this is the same that white people have a difficulty in telling similar looking black people apart similar looking asian people have a problem with telling similar looking indian people apart etc etc yeah, this, this mom friend of mine, she was really worried about her son. And she said, you know, we went to this playground. I'm worried that this COVID is really screwing him up socially because we went to this playground and he started playing with this kid and he was calling this kid the name of a kid in his class. Even though that kid's name wasn't really Hudson, he was calling him Hudson. And I was like, was the kid black? And she's like, yeah, how did you know? <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Your kid is having trouble telling these two kids apart because of the other race effect, which is well known in, in criminal psychology. And this has been a, a terrible thing for um, people who have been convicted on this basis because you get a lineup and 
you know, white people who, who can't tell Neil deGrasse Tyson from OJ Simpson. <laughs> <laughs> and that's called the, the other race effect. Yeah. Amazing. I love, I love having names for stuff like that. Right. So latitude, surely once you've gotten over an illness, you're just fine. Like why would an acute non-traumatic incident cause a state change long-term? So there are the COVID long haulers. These are people who have inflammatory markers that last for a really long time after they recover. And COVID seems to be more likely to cause these kinds of problems than some other diseases. Mononucleosis, uh, which um, in, the, in the blog I have coming out, I talk about this woman that I know who had mono and her personality really fundamentally changed. She became very anxious and depressed. And there's a lot of idea that depression, anxiety, other mental health problems might actually have something to do with inflammation. So even after you fought off an infection, your immune system can still be on high alert. You can still have this, this inflammation. And there are certain other very normal diseases of civilization that are caused by this. Um, when you are overweight or obese, you can have chronic systemic inflammation. And when your body doesn't know the difference between uh, I have too much weight on me and I'm actively fighting off an infection, you're going to experience the same kind of sickness behavior or lassitude in response to that. So, you know, your body, the sixth sense that you have where your body is monitoring whether or not there's an infectious agent in your, in, in your body and whether or not you're fighting off something, it's not going to be perfect. And it's less costly for it to make the mistake of carrying on with inflammation than it is for it to stop. So you have to think about this thing. It's called the smoke detector principle, right? People have smoke detectors that go off when they're not supposed to because that's a better mistake for the smoke detector to make than for the smoke detector to not go off when there's a fire. And similarly, when your psychology is examining whether or not you have an infection, it's better for it to make a mistake thinking that you have an infection than that you don't have an infection. That negativity bias, which continues to come up throughout all of evolutionary psychology being reframed as a smoke detector effect is really cool does that mean does that mean that on average fatter people are more introverted fatter people are going to be less open to new experience i do not know any studies on that and i like don't i'm not going to be the person to do that um i even uh there was a guy who used to have a really great podcast called smart drugs smarts uh, now I can't, Jesse Lawler is his name. I can't remember the guest that he had on, but he had on a guest who was talking about the cognitive changes that come um, with being overweight or obese. And people talk about, when they talk about having COVID, they talk about things like uh, like brain fog because inflammation also interferes with, with mental functioning. But brain fog also might be a way that people describe, I don't feel like thinking about new ideas. I don't feel like sitting down and reading. I just feel like preserving my energy you know, even when I was sick, I was watching, you know, you, I, I love Mitchell and Webb, as you may also love Mitchell and Webb, the, the, uh, and like Peep Show and stuff. I was watching clips of things I've watched hundreds of times, just just familiar stuff that I wanted to, to engage in. And that's a possibility, um, not just for, you know, people who have these kinds of in, uh, conditions based on like food that they eat. People are always talking about what foods are inflammatory and anti-inflammatory, um, but also potentially uh, you know, other kinds of diseases, um, like, uh, multiple sclerosis. Um, the last thing I was going to say is that there's some studies where they gave people like an aspirin, or I think it was an Advil, they gave people an anti-inflammatory uh, drug and they examined their behavior 
afterwards. And people who were given, uh, I think it was an ibuprofen every day, were less emotionally sensitive. This was a small effect, but you can actually see that if you lower people's inflammation, that also changes their behavior in socially important ways. Wow. How does having a pathogen in the world change the attraction and sexual dynamics that are going on? I don't, I mean, I'm very interested in, in how this is going to, to play out. So men and women have quite different responses to infection threats. Uh, there's a marsupial mouse that I love to talk about who, uh, they only live for one breeding season and they spend no energy at all on maintaining their bodies. They're entirely, their whole energy budget goes to trying to have as many matings as possible. And by the end of the mating season, they're literally falling apart. There's like infections all over them. They're just riddled with disease and they're still trying to have sex with as many females as possible because that's their whole raison d'etre. Right. And so, uh, in humans, you know, it's not definitely not that exaggerated, but men don't conserve their energy budget as much to try and maintain their bodies uh, as women do, because for men, mating is much more rewarding. A man can just have sex once and have a baby, whereas a woman often has to have sex more than once, can only produce a child every, you know, in ancestral populations every four years with nine months of gestation and three years on average of breastfeeding. That's what hunter gatherers generally uh, do is it takes four years to make somebody who could potentially become an adult. And also women have to maintain their bodies better in order to carry a child. Sperm is really cheap and eggs and pregnancy are really expensive. So you might see even more misalignment of sexual desire and motivation in men and women because women are, are much more sensitive to infection threat. And post COVID, certainly you're going to see a dip in libido. This is something that you see with all diseases. But when you look at like male rats and female rats, for example, the males are much more likely to carry on having sex and not reduce their libido in response to inflammation compared uh, to females. Uh, so this could have long-term effects. I've become obsessed with a Reddit, which is called Dead Bedrooms, where people talk about um, their sexual mismatches. They have a high libido partner usually and a low libido partner. And it's, it's fascinating, but I think that these mismatches, they happen usually, you know, men want to have more sex than, than women do, but you could imagine that uh, this could be exacerbated. This, this mismatch could be exacerbated by disease or even the threat of disease. Good time to be gay then, if you're gay. Yeah. <laughs> Great time. I don't time. know if you're gay. There was, that, there was that guy, there was that like a Hungarian MP who uh, got busted for being in a gay orgy and the people who, you know, in, in the 1970s and 80s, you'd be like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe he was in a gay orgy. And nowadays they're like, I can't believe he was in an environment in which he could have spread COVID. That's so irresponsible. I hope he was wearing his mask. I hope he was wearing, <laughs> not that one, not that mask, different one. Dan Savage was saying that uh, he thought COVID was going to bring back glory holes. <laughs> I don't know if it has. God. I haven't really been around. I've been Any in New York in March, so maybe I'll let you know, but. <laughs> anyone that's listening who has found an uptick in glory hole usage during covid please comment below yeah i mean there's so much that's fascinating that i i tweeted the other day saying that covid's been fantastic for productivity and mustaches but awful for sex like <laughs> how much of it aside from the concerns that we have around viruses being out there is mm -hmm. there um like a restart to something that's become ingrained in terms of like someone's habit of not talking to guys or girls, not having sex, not being open and spending time with other people. Is there like a, a brief acute period that might 
end up spreading out? Like, are we going to have a population dip in 24 years' time or something like that? I think that there's been some controversy about whether or not we're going to see a baby dip or a baby boom. You know, lots of people who were paired up ended up spending all their time together. And people, I think, who were in couples who were isolated together probably had a lot more sex. There was just a whole lot more time and boredom. <laughs> so that, that makes sense. But I, as far as I know, the, the, the full tally of whether or not there's been an increase or a decrease um, hasn't been accounted for. And I know that some people were worried that COVID was going to have some kind of long-term impact on, on children. It doesn't seem right now like women who catch COVID when they're pregnant have children that have um, serious problems with any kind of birth weight or anything. But, you know, what we saw in the influenza pandemic, um, this was like 100 years ago, um, in Denmark was that there was an uptick in schizophrenia afterwards. And so there's some psychological problems, things like schizophrenia or um, autism, that you actually wouldn't see until children were over, were older. So we actually won't fully know what influence COVID might have on pregnant women until, you know, three or four, or even 20 years down the line. You don't actually have onset of schizophrenia until you're 25 years old on oh. average. So is that, what, is that due to stress? That's due to the psychological profile of the women during the pregnancy? There are some people who think that mental illness, many mental illnesses are actually caused by disease. Like there's, there's some co correlation, for example, between having a high fever uh, when you're young, uh, having rheumatic fever, and having obsessive compulsive disorder um, when you're older. So it, it makes sense, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, it makes sense that many of the, the ways that psychology changes that are least adaptive are some kind of noise that was introduced into the system that undermines the adaptive you know, functioning of the system. So it, it is possible. I'm, I'm, not, I'm really not trying to scaremonger. You know, coronaviruses are super common and it's, it's just as likely that, that nothing will happen at all. But we do know that, that flu is correlated with an uptick in schizophrenia diagnosis. Why would schizophrenia and autism be adaptive that's what i'm saying is that they're, that they're not so they're they're maladaptive but there is some way that a virus uh, changes the development of the brain that makes it more likely so there can be a, a nature and a nurture effect here such that you have a genetic predisposition to schizophrenia but unless your mother had the flu when she was pregnant uh, you won't get it and um, you know, there's there's considerations about this. You know, when you see identical twins who are born, um, oftentimes the um, smaller twin, the one who got for whatever reason a lower blood supply, of less placental access or whatever, will have a different personality than the other twin. So that's a great example of, of nature and nurture. That uh, this 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 guy emailed me to tell me about these twins that he knew where one was much more aggressive and much more extroverted uh, than the, the younger one, born a few minutes later, who ended up being smaller, who was, much, who was basically trying to get social capital from her parents and get their attention in a completely different strategy uh, by being cute and sweet and quiet, whereas the bigger one was being more grabby and aggressive and, you know, shouty, right? So we all figure out the best strategy to get attention. Uh, those things are somewhat genetic predisposed, but, you know, there's there's also a correlation with extroversion and attractiveness in men and women. Attractive people are more likely to be extroverted and men, strong men are more likely to be extroverted. And that's because being extroverted, as I said before, is, is kind of expensive. There's a lot of things that can go wrong. 
and you don't want to be extroverted unless you can afford it in terms of social capital. Yeah. So is that, I had this conversation with Rob Henderson and, and the penny dropped there. He talked about how muscular men, even in 2021 where we have far too much food and there's lots of fat people everywhere, muscular yeah. men are signaling i can acquire excess calories i am so fit and i am so good at resource acquisition that look not only can i eat what i need to eat but i can eat more so that i can have these ridiculous things attached to me um does it seem like the muscles yeah, like what are you talking, I'm about? talking about muscles um oh, <laughs> yeah uh and um is it the same with extroversion is it look at how much more outgoing i am look at how much more i can put myself out there because i have so much fitness inside of me i have so much energy and vigor inside of me and if you mate with me your children could have this as well sexy son yeah absolutely i think that there's a certain uh you know if somebody's extroverted and they identify strongly with being extroverted there's a signaling aspect to that and they can show off you know how extroverted they are how many people they know how big their social circle is uh, but that's certainly a lot of, I think, what social media is based on is is signaling that um, I was confused about the muscles and the excess calories, because to me, like muscles just have like a direct fitness signaling. They're not really necessarily signaling. I have a lot of excess calories. They're just signaling I'm, I'm strong and uh, and formidable. And if you have two different ways of gaining status, you know, prestige and form uh, and formidability. Uh, prestige is acquired by being somebody smart or wise that people want to talk to. You see like the, the gurus these days are people who are trying to signal that they have both, right? I can give you great advice, but also, you know, watch me deadlift this. <laughs> so, Do you think those two work against each other? Do you think that it's a confusing signal to members of the opposite sex to have that? Is it easier to block people into archetypes? Um, I do think that it's easier to block people um, into archetypes to some extent, but people who are trying to signal that they're both like a really muscular, you know, big dude often tries to signal just as hard that he's like a nice person because he recognizes that people are very likely to typecast him as like a tough or what, what is, what is it that you guys say in Britain? If somebody's really built that they're super hench. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I can sort of attest to that myself, certainly that for quite a while, I tried to downplay my looks and like overplay the vocabulary that I would use or the, the things that I would say or the, the, the way that I would talk and the stuff that I would cite, because I knew that coming from my background, if people knew who I was being a club promoter for 14 years, and yeah. perhaps the way that I look a little bit, that people were just going to immediately think fuckboy. So I would I would try my best to signal, no, 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 enigma, like onion layers. Like I would try my absolute best to try and get that to come across because I desperately didn't want to be typecast as that fuckboy, despite however much my history may have. No, I'm too good. I'm too good looking. No, I know somebody who wears glasses for that reason, even though he doesn't need to because he thinks he looks cleverer in glasses. And, uh, and I was like, I don't wear glasses. He's like, yeah, you look Jewish. That doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> so moving forward, there must be, there's going to be like a couple of things at play because obviously we have like our genetics, uh, our genes trying to deploy themselves through our, our behavior. Right. And that may be, there's been a virus floating around to women 
go go steady you need you need to be a little bit careful here if you have children it's it's costly but there will be an alternative system at work which is you haven't had sex in ages like you need to go have sex so surely these two things are going to be pulling against each other yeah, there's 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 this whole literature that's really fascinating. It's called life history theory, and it says people respond to threats differently depending on whether they're fast life history or slow life history. So slow life history means that you um, give birth later, you take care of your offspring for a long time, and you live a long time. Whereas live fast and die long young is like the the fast life history where you're trying to have lots of sex partners, have as many babies as possible. And uh, if you get a threat from the environment that there's a threat of death around, if you're a slow life history, you might actually try to become more cautious or try to engage in in a steady long-term relationship more likely. Whereas if you are a live fast, die young kind of phenotype, you're like, well, I need to have sex with as many people as possible. I need to breed before I die. Kind of like those mice that fall apart that I was talking about. And so the, the best example of different life histories is between men and women, men inherently have a faster life history um, on average than, than women do. But there's this idea that if you experience hardship when you're young, you're getting cues that the environment is volatile and unstable and that it's important that you um, breed quickly. There's some correspondence, for example, with uh, having early life hardship and having earlier puberty that boys, their voice drops. No way that it triggers them to go into puberty more quickly because that would mean that they're able to protect themselves. Yeah. And oh, and I knew God. a guy who, who said that uh, he thinks he would have been like a foot taller if he hadn't had a stepdad because having a stepdad, having an unrelated male in the house who was aggressive to him, he didn't have a nice stepdad, um, sort of made him put his energy into maturing earlier rather than growing. And this is actually what you see in, in the Congolese pygmies is that they're very, very small. They're like, I can't remember how tall they are, um, but they have much earlier puberty timing than other groups is because their strategy is instead of getting big and tall, which is kind of a more long life history strategy, they instead shunt that energy into becoming reproductively viable earlier because they live in an insecure, unstable environment. So this is, you know, this is a controversial idea, but if you want to talk to somebody about this, um, Marco Del Giudice, he does a really great work on this, and he's tried to translate many different psychiatric conditions into this possibility that they, they have something to do with life history. And you do see uh, people's, you know, their, how early they go through puberty and various other things about them reproductively correlate with certain aspects of their psychology and, and mental health. That's mental. Like the way that our life experience can kind of turn on or turn off things that we presume are like, what, like bestowed on us by God or like immutable truths or like some weird source code thing that's inside of us. And we're talking about in utero, like before you've even entered the world, shit can happen that is going to fundamentally change the way that your life is going to happen in ways that you're never even going to know and you're not able to split test your own yourself into a different a different version where it didn't happen that's mental are we going to see more people be asexual during this period as well i think that's possible i mean the the whole controversy about asexuality and I've, I've, i'm working on a paper about asexuality is whether or not it's a sexual orientation or whether or not it's, it's a disorder. Certainly if you have anorexia, not like anorexia, the condition, but what's the, 
the biological term anorexia, you don't feel like eating. People say that that's uh, the outcome of some kind of disease. But asexuality is being seen uh, less that way. But I also think that asexuality, because there's this population of people who are having fast sex with people that they barely know, now there's this lexicon of people who are like demisexual. I only want to have sex with people when I get to know them very well, otherwise known as women. (laughs) Are you being being serious? Typical, yeah, the demisexual and like gray sexual. um, There's this lexicon of identities uh, that I think correspond to generally perfectly normal behavior. And uh, some women who are asexual, like in the study that we did, I think 75% of um, asexuals uh, were women. Um, interestingly, there are people who are, are asexual and they, uh, they're also trans. They start taking testosterone. And guess what happens when they start taking testosterone? They stop being asexual, right? So it definitely seems like there's something hormonal going on. And it's amazing to me how averse we are to these biological explanations. People will tell you that, you know, an offhanded remark their mother made changed them forever, but they won't talk about how they had like a fever or they broke their leg or something. Uh, And people are really averse to the idea that these biological effects really have have an influence on their personality. I think it's like modern day dualism. You know, I have a soul and it has no, it's not influenced by testosterone. It's untouched by my hormones and uh, disease. What's your opinion of people being able to step into their own programming around this stuff then? If you're sufficiently well-versed in evolutionary psychology and sufficiently mindful and you've done all of the meditation and you can observe the texture of your own mind to the fidelity where you actually perhaps allow this stuff to manifest in consciousness because the front of your brain isn't taken up like scrolling through Tinder or fucking TikTok or whatever... What, how do you feel around people being able to pull back some of that programming and source code? Um, I feel like I have some insight into myself, but my self-insight is at the cost of having an incredibly cynical view of myself. You know, when I think about how I feel about the people in my life, I know that I love my mother, but I also know that I might have been calling her more often when I was sick because I had an inherent interest in getting more of her investment. I know that I love my husband, but I also know that if he lost meat value or I gained meat value or if I became ugly or disfigured, that it would fundamentally change our relationship. We're not two souls together. We are two bodies. We are physically embodied and it's impossible for us to get away from that. So what seems like it's going on in the culture is that people have the strong desire to think about themselves as these, you know, kind of disembodied souls. And it's not very dignified to talk about yourself in, in these other more embodied uh, ways. I don't think that you can have a perfect view. Yeah, I have a, I have a, a close friend who um, had a lot of psychological problems and didn't realize until he was 50 that he had had a serious illness um, and, a, a, and a fever so high that he had a seizure until he read some letters that his mother wrote. She had never told him. And it elucidated so much about him. There's so much I can never know about myself. Uh, about my birth and about, you know, my my mother gave birth to me in Brazil and I I didn't breastfeed for like two days because they gave her so many sedatives. Like who knows what I would have been like if I hadn't been heavily sedated when I was born. I'll never know. Isn't it fascinating that we live in a society now where people pride themselves on the rationality. We're, We're a meritocracy. People are able to become whatever they want to be. I am in complete control. And yet... 
there is still this element, this sacred, ephemeral, religious sense of us that is outside who I am. People talk about it as if it is this sort of universal thread. Jet Li, Jet Li again, and his and his other Jet Lees. Um, people talk about it in that way. There, there definitely seems to be a little bit of. And it's not even cognitive dissonance because people just aren't aware that it's happening. But we we do seem to have. I would dualism. I think is a good a good way to put it. We think that there's two different things going on. But it seems like almost everybody, at least in the West, has on this pedestal the utilitarian rationalist perspective. Science is going to be able to explain everything, and they still allow this uh, who I am, my true sense of being, and can become incredibly upset. Uh, and insulted if that gets challenged. Do you know that when someone needs to urinate, it reduces their belief in free will? <laughs> no way. Yeah. Are you being serious? Yeah. How? Why? Um, I think it's because you 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 feel like you're so tethered to something physiological that you're like, yeah, it reduces your ability to, to believe in free will. So what you were basically just talking about is this kind of modern day uh, dualism. And what I think is really at the root of that B.F. Skinner, back in the like 1950s and 1960s, talked about something called counter control, that uh, we don't want to be controlled by others. He was using this reward and and punishment uh, kind of paradigm. And in my view, the more, you know, social media gets to know about us, the more we have these findings about sex differences and things, people don't want to be predictable or controllable. It's fine on your Spotify when your Spotify tells you what songs you're going to like. But it, people are really not happy about being told that they're more likely to have specific interests or be able to think about certain things more easily than other things. Um, you know, the idea that men and women have different cognitive styles is now incredibly uh, controversial. And I think more and more people are identifying as non-binary or they're not willing to talk about various things that would make you able to predict their behavior. I mean, just looking at personality, you can predict if somebody is male or female with 96% accuracy, right? Like if you just look at uh, a long form of personality inventory, you can detect somebody's um, sex with high fidelity, just looking at their brains. And people don't like that. People don't like the idea that you can predict what they're like on the basis of something like their sex assigned at birth, and um, I think that what's going on, you know, is is that this is getting muddied uh, by people identifying in as you know different ways. And, and you know, my view is that some of the some of that is really identity, but some of it is trying to escape control. I can't believe that that thing about the uh, personality at ninety six percent. I'd never heard that before. This is an interesting thought for everybody that's listening as well, and yourself. Do you think? given the current political and cultural furor around bodies determining gender and sex, do you think that people would be more insulted by you taking an inventory of their body uh, proportions and determining it from that or from their personality? Yeah, people people feel like their personality is part of their, their soul. And so I think people are also, they know that they can change their minds about their personality but there's studies that have been done that they say, you know, if you're a bigger, stronger man, you're more likely to not tolerate people scrounging from you. You're less likely to be generous. You're less likely to be in favor of things like um, welfare, things like that. 
And so uh, these studies that have shown that you're able to tell a lot about somebody's beliefs in psychology on the basis of their face, what people are calling the, the new phrenology, right? This is going to take off. Governments are going to be using this. You can absolutely predict things about somebody's psychology on the basis of their face. Uh, people, are, you know, if you if you tell, if I show you a 10 second clip of somebody without sound, you'll be able to tell me whether or not they're gay or straight with like 70 percent accuracy. There's like all of us, you know, when we when people talk about you know, knowing your gut or having a gut feeling about somebody, that's not something that's spiritual or that is something special about being human. A computer can do that. A computer can take in all of the heuristics that humans are using to make imperfect decisions and determine with some accuracy whether somebody's a psychopath or somebody's generous or somebody's going to be monogamous. These are all things that are going to be possible looking at people physiologically in the future. And people are horrified by that because it's stuff that they can't do anything about. That's a really good point. I think this is one of the reasons why I've fallen in love so much with evolutionary psychology. My uh, academic awakening has been quite late I would say I'm a late bloomer um, <laughs> especially given the fact I was at uni for five years I just did a subject that I thought was fucking shit um, yeah. and spent a lot of money pointlessly but my love in evolutionary psychology is that it allows us to see kind of it's, it's as close to seeing things for what they are mm-hmm. I think as it can be and that to me is fascinating like I read like the book that made me fall in love with it is uh, The Moral Animal and um Every other page, I'm just reading this thing, like this how to create a human document, like from first principles that's just explaining how all of this stuff happens. And it does come up against the idea that we're a sovereign free will. And um, I can imagine why people find that to be uncomfortable. To me, every time that I discover why it's painful why it's more painful to lose a child that's 10 years old than one that's three or 17 yeah that totally blew my mind because they're the closest that they could be to being almost to be fertile and you've lost them and your genetic heritage is gone and you're just like there's so much of that that i didn't know and although it's like obviously that particular example is tragic think of a non-tragic example isn't that fucking interesting and cool like You must have, doing the research that you do, you must be endlessly engaged and fascinated. Yeah, I mean, my own behavior, my own responses are endlessly fascinating to me. Just, I, I sometimes feel like, a, you know, I'm an alien who's been reincarnated as a human woman. And someday I'll have to give a report about what it was like and how weird it was being in this body, in this time, in this mind, and, and having the thoughts that I do. And it it's i think something that people really uh, really miss out on when they're unwilling to look at themselves with this often very cynical perspective uh, for somebody to say you can't possibly know the pain that i feel you can't possibly know why i'm interested in this person and not interested in that person it's you know it's a mystical experience people won't necessarily use the word mystical but there is this attitude of willful ignorance around people's own behavior and psychology. I was just uh, listening to this, this dating coach talking about how there's all these women who want to get married before they're 40 and they're not dating online. They're hoping they're going to like meet a man at the grocery store or whatever. And people are often so unwilling to be tactical about things, matters of, of love and life and, and psychology because they don't want to look themselves in the face. They don't want to 
say, you know, this is very unlikely to work. They don't want to think tactically, rationally, strategically about things that are supposed to be ephemeral, beautiful, spiritual. That's dumb because <laughs> I'm I'm <laughs> I'm more than prepared to spend all of my time walking in and out of Whole Foods in America, speaking really loudly in a British accent because I know it's a competitive advantage when I'm ready to start a family. Like, I've used all of the things I've got. Like, if you've managed to make it to your 30s and you want to have a family, spend a bit of time assessing your strengths and just annihilate people with them. Like, another thing, here's something I put, I put, this, in my news, I put this in my newsletter uh, a couple of weeks ago. I think personally, because I've spent a lot of time meditating, I just broke a thousand days. Congratulations, Chris. Um, I've spent a lot of time. You're not supposed to track that, honestly, but you know. Whatever. I thought it was good. I've spent a lot of time. I've spent a lot of time meditating. I'm still mostly terrible at it, but sometimes I get interesting insights into the texture of my mind. Hour a day, fifteen minutes a day. Is that Sam Harris's thing? Fifteen minutes a day, every day. Um, But. Without evolutionary psychology particularly, it could be something else. There could be something else that could come in its place. Perhaps a sufficient understanding of psychiatry or psychology or whatever might give you this. Me learning the tiny sliver I have of Eve Psych has reframed so much of my mindfulness practice in a way that I find incredibly beneficial because it, a lot of what I needed, and there may be people listening that, have, that are a little bit more sort of cerebral like me or perhaps just have a strong inner monologue, I needed the context. I needed the justification of why. The question of why was so strong to me that simply being able to observe things appear in consciousness wasn't enough. I needed to understand why they were there. Do you, do you sort of get the point I'm making? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I've done three 10-day retreats. Um, actually, they were all in the UK. And the kinds of insane ruminations that you have when you're on retreat are baffling and also I've never wanted to be out of my own skin and another person like I've never been so sick of myself as I was on retreat and so you do get a little sense of that when you do a 15-minute meditation but you know for example I I had you know I'm not really a very jealous person I had jealous rumination that lasted like three days where I was like having this conversation with myself over and over again until I made myself so sick of myself this woman told me this pregnant woman uh, who was on retreat with me told me that she was playing and playing and playing over and over in her head again and again, an argument that she had with her best friend who used all of the hot water showering before her. They had an argument. That was what she was playing in her head. I thought that she was pregnant. She'd be like thinking about baby names or like what her fiance was doing in Amsterdam that weekend or whatever. That's what I would be ruminating about. And so we all have um, the things that we are, are ruminating about. And Buddhism has a whole language for what these little you know mental demons are but absolutely i agree that an evolutionary psychology perspective is really explanatory and also helps you figure out okay of course i'm thinking about this stuff all the time this is stuff that's you know sitting here thinking of nothing is the last thing that my my mind wants to do but i until i can hold my evolved psychology at arm's length i'm going to be too into it to actually figure out what's going on yeah very much so. I think anyone that wants to understand their own mind, and there's a lot of people listening who are very similar to, to myself in that regard, because they keep on listening, apparently. Um, 
I think that the framing of evolutionary psychology can go a long way to helping you self-actualize um, because it just allows you to peer into your own source code and there's not, there's not many subject areas, I think, that do that. Look, Diana, thank you for coming on. People want to nosy around with your stuff. Yeah. Where should they go? I have a Twitter that has all my links. It's at sentientist. That's S-E-N-T-I-E-N-T-I-S-T. Uh, I'm at dianafleischman.com. That has my links. And then I also blog a couple places. Uh, one of them is Dianaverse, where there will be blog about the can COVID change your personality topic. Amazing. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to getting you back on to work out, can you train your boyfriend? When's that out? Uh, when are you doing that? Uh, it's, it's taking ages, so I will not. I should have even, never told anyone I was even writing it. But it can, you hurry, can you hurry up, please? Next year, sure, I I, I'll speak to you on behalf of your publisher as well. Yeah, can you hurry up? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget that you might be listening but not subscribed. So just go and press that subscribe button for me, please. Thank you. It's just on the app. Just open the little thing. Don't get distracted. No Instagram. Just press that subscribe button. It means that you will not miss on any episodes whenever they are uploaded. And it makes me very happy. Peace.